James Naismith. He was the inventor of basketball, and he was a Freemason. He had ties both in Massachusetts and here in Kansas, but he had so much to his life that deserves to be remembered farther than what is typically remembered, especially in Freemasonry. We're going to talk about that interesting story behind Brother Naismith this evening, and we have an excellent guest on with us this evening that's going to help walk us through that and the really unique aspects of his life and the differences that he made that most do not know about. So stick with us because we have an amazing episode lined up for you right after this on Historical Light. Welcome back to the Historical Light Masonic Podcast, dedicated to illuminate our past and bring our Masonic history to light since 2016. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome back to Historical Light. I'm Alex Powers, your host. Uh, this is Historical Light, an independent Masonic show focused on the historical events and aspects within Freemasonry. We have an excellent guest on with us this evening, uh, Brother Michael Jarzebeck, all the way from Massachusetts. My brother, thank you so much for being here. And if you wouldn't mind, for those that do not know you, would you mind giving us a little bit of a background of just who you are and your background in Masonry? Thanks for having me on. Um, Mike Jarzebeck, I'm from uh, Grand Lodge, Massachusetts. I'm a member of Brigham Lodge in Ludlow, Massachusetts, and uh, past junior grand warden of the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, and the current director or chairman of education and training. Fantastic, man. Thank you so much for being on. And it's good to see you again. We just got to see you not too long ago uh, down here for MasonicCon Kansas, um, which you were here to talk about, Brother Naismith. And it's awesome because we have this really cool connection, uh, both from your home jurisdiction and right here in Kansas. But unfortunately, we never get to know uh, this deeper behind the scenes side of Naismith that I'm super stoked to, uh, to dive in with you this evening on. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get there though, we usually try to start off with a few icebreakers just to get to know you, um, before we get into our topic. So the two ones we start off with here are, first of all, do you have family history prior to you in Freemasonry? So my great grandfather, um, was a Mason and I have his, you know, a Masonic coin with the dates of his three degrees on it, but I didn't really ever know him. But outside of that, uh, not that I'm aware of. All right. So having some connection there, but maybe not knowing him so well, did that play an impact of you joining Freemasonry? Uh, or, or what was it that actually made you want to make that leap into becoming a Freemason? So the funny thing is, is that you know, I've heard a lot of great stories about people joining Freemasonry, and unfortunately, mine's not one of those great stories. <laughs> so um, I I had gotten out of the military and went to North Dakota, and I came back to Connecticut where I grew up. And, um, you know, everybody, almost everybody that I knew was gone except for a few friends. And 
the story kind of starts a little bit earlier than when I joined in that one of those friends was in Amway. And so he was, you know, that's what he was doing with all his time. So I joined that. I mean, I think it was 150 bucks at the time. And, you know, it's just a way for me to connect with somebody again at a different level, you know, cause you go away, you leave and people grow up and they change. Um, but I never really got into that because I figured if I had to put that much work into anything, I'd be successful. So it really didn't interest me to to sell products. I'm not I'm not much of a salesman. Sure. Um, but fast forward a little bit, and he joins the Freemasons. And so I was doing some work, some electrical work on a pizza shop that was a friend of his, and he's like, "Hey, I joined this thing. You know, you should join." And I'm like, "What's it all about?" And he's like, "Oh, you get further light." I'm like, all right, what's that mean? He's like, you're glad to find out. And honestly, the way my mindset was, and I, I think I asked what, how much it cost, and he was like $75. And I'm like, that's cheaper than Amway. And I spent way more money on super things than that. So I'm curious. I'll check it out. So that's really how I came to masonry. And then that was Connecticut. And I moved to Massachusetts a couple months later, and I never really went to that lodge. And I joined up here. And you know, got really involved up here. And, uh, you know, now it's a huge part. I can't even imagine not doing it. That was 20 years ago. Right. So, I mean, yeah, you've had quite the Masonic journey. I mean, I know when I first had the pleasure to meet you was up in uh, Ezekiel Bates for one of the original Masonicons. And I believe you were serving as Grand Junior Warden at the time. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, you've had a really impressive journey, um, but I'm curious, you know, beyond those matters, what is it that's really kept you around? What, what, what is it that's really locked you in and, and makes you still want to be a Freemason to this day? So I'd say, I would say first, it's probably the connections, you know, like the friendships that like you and I have and RJ Definitely. and a bunch of other guys. I mean, we have you know, it seems like we pulled this group together all throughout the country. And then even brothers in my own lodge and own jurisdiction as well. Um, but honestly, it filled a need for me. I was probably, when I joined, you know, I was somewhere around, I was 25 years old, I think. Um, you know, really into the band Rage Against the Machine, really wanted to change the world and make it a better place. But, but coming from a really angry place, like, of... I don't, I didn't like seeing some of the injustices and the, and, you know, the, um, it's just the bad stuff that happens in the world. And I was yeah. frustrated by it. So being frustrated by it, but I didn't really know how to do what to do with that. Um, and I think a lot of people are like that at that age or, you know, around that age that, you know, it becomes a destructive thing because you just have this energy. I don't know where to put it. So I joined Freemasonry. And, you know, as I went up through the line, I started to realize, I started to learn how to do things and how to express myself. And I think it gave me a voice of sorts too, because when I, when I first joined the lodge and my wife will tell you this, and she may have already told you this, I wouldn't look a waitress in the eye. Um, I was that shy. Um, and it was probably just things that had happened in my life that I felt beat down. Um, sure. But Freemasonry kind of gave me some of that confidence back and it gave me a way to, to express that, that energy in a more productive way. And I think the really the turning point for me and what really, what really does it for me is that there was a, there was a thing on the radio where the school in our town, 
had had budget cuts and they couldn't do any, you know, they couldn't um, they couldn't fund some programs. So I scheduled a meeting with the principal of our school and said, we're going to fix that. Like, what do you, you know, what do you need? Like, we'll do a fundraiser for you. We'll figure something out. And we started doing a fundraiser, just selling spaghetti. And we bought books for a library. Um, and that thing, and that went on to make like $3,000 the first year. And it was like this big cultural event that like the school band, like the jazz band would show off and kids would show off their artwork. And like kids would come up from, from the middle school to get acclimated or from the elementary school to get acclimated. But it was this way I learned that I didn't have to be frustrated that I could find a positive outlet and that I could build things right. in my community. Uh, so that's, that's, I think that's really what, what really attracted me is that that chance to be able to, to, to build virtue and to build community. Um, and that's really attracted me ever since. Um, and then I met guys like you and Brian and RJ and Dago that, you know, kind of are the same way and together we're even stronger, I think. So, you know, it just builds on itself. Man, such a, such a strong answer there. That That's fantastic. And, you know, honestly, I've been, uh, so blessed to to have the opportunity to get to know you and you know definitely sharing those so i mean yeah those relationships you're talking about is uh 100 one of a kind and definitely makes the masonic experience 100 all right man i am stoked to get into this because while i got to hear most of it at MasonicCon, i was also running around like a mad horse so i didn't get to hear all the details but you brought out a side of Naismith. So many like factors. I always knew the high level stuff. You know, he had this this time in Kansas. He spent time as Kansas Freemason. Uh, we rededicated the DeBruce Hall a few years ago when it was established. Like all these main points that you see all the time. Um, but you brought out this this personality of his true life behind the scenes uh, that blew my mind. And I am stoked uh, to have that conversation and kind of dig in on a few of those topics. Uh, before we do, before we get into the meat and potatoes here, I do want to break over and give everyone um, an opportunity and a huge thanks, of course, uh, to everyone that has supported the show. Yeah, we've been around since 2016 and we are viewer funded. Uh, love to keep growing and keep bringing you guys more Masonic light through our history, our proud history, uh, supporting that, archiving that, and sharing it. Uh, so if you want to support the show, you like what you see here, you can always do so by going over to the website, historicallight.com slash support, and you can jump on and support us through Patreon. Uh, and yes, you can do that through PayPal uh, within the Patreon system. So we have some awesome... Uh, Awesome new things in the works. Of course, we've always had our regular lapel pins, but our exclusive Patreon subscribers now have their very own lapel pin that just came in, and uh, they're going to get an exclusive look at that, and then we'll have those posted on the site soon. So if you like those and you want to get in on those, make sure you jump on and join us on Patreon to support the show. All right, man, I want to get into this topic. So James Naismith. Now, we, we talked about uh, he, he was a Kansas Mason, past master of actually the lodge that my uncle and my grandfather were raised in, in Lawrence. Um, 
But that's not where his Masonic journey began. And I think you're a little closer to home to that. Uh, so before we get into kind of this backstory, would you mind giving just a little bit of, I guess, build up of where his Masonic journey began closer to your neck of the woods? Yeah, so James Naismith joins um, Roswell Lee Lodge in 1894 in Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, so to get to where Naismith, like we kind of have to put the setting in there. So Naismith comes from Canada. Um, he's a student, um, you know, uh, and a reluctant kind of he always wanted to get away from sports and it kind of always kept calling him back. Um, despite the detriment of his, you know, his family didn't like it very much. Um, they were ashamed of it. Um, but we have to set the stage of, you know, a lot of people might not be familiar with Springfield, Massachusetts, but Springfield, Massachusetts in that time period is pretty much the Detroit in its heyday, you know, of then, um, the first, the first gasoline-powered cars made there. Vulcanized rubber is invented there. Right. Um, the uh, what else is the dictionary? The Webster's Dictionary, I believe. The just all these different things are coming from here. So this is a really dynamic and vibrant city at that point in time. Um, and a lot of that has to do with where the story starts. In my mind, is when Henry Knox wants to wants to work on the production line, uh, wants to work on not so much the production line, but interchangeable parts. They want to come up with interchangeable parts. So he asked Eli Whitney to come up to the Springfield Armory, which him and George Washington had cited, um, because it was far up the Connecticut River. And, it, you know, boats couldn't get up there. There's mountain ranges around it. So it was very, it was very protected. It was a good place to put the armory. Um, so he, he wants to bring in Eli Whitney, but Eli Whitney's kind of busy with the things he's doing. And he says, you know what? I got a better idea. I'll send you this guy, Roswell Lee, and he'll come up and he'll help you. So Roswell Lee goes to the armory and he builds this, this whole community. And he ends up bringing on Thomas Blanchard, who creates the repeating lathe, which changes, changes the way that we, that they made rifles, but changes the world really. And it kickstarts the Second Industrial Revolution in Springfield. Um, so Naismith comes in, you know, quite a bit later. But Naismith comes in into this YMC. He comes to come to the the YMCA training school, which is kind of a reaction in a lot of ways to the industrialization that Roswell Lee brings in. Mm. Um, and so he comes to that school to learn how to be, uh, how to run a gym, how to run a YMCA. Um, he's really interested in being a physical education instructor. And, you know, he invents basketball in 1891, but in 1894, um, he signs these bylaws right here. And so what's interesting, what I like to point out is he's halfway down, and I'm sure we can put this in the, chat or whatever later but he incise he signs it as instructor so you get this guy that invented basketball and some people might say that it's only been three years you know what really who knew what basketball was but it was already all around the world at that point and um 
so he comes into the lodge he comes into lodge during that time period 1894 um already had invented basketball like i said uh, was very involved in the physical education field and you know that's kind of where his story starts in that reaction to the industrial revolution to try to help help these men that came off these farms you know to develop the parts of their bodies that they no longer were developing and develop their minds and their souls at the same time right so then when when he got into freemasonry he was raised in your lodge correct mm -hmm. which is pretty cool and then so I'm, I'm trying to remember at what point he ended up moving to Kansas. Do you, do you recall what year that was? I'm not sure. I think it was around five years later. He stops off in, in Colorado um, in the interim. Um, but I, I do want to clarify too that, so he's a member of my lodge. My lodge merged with another lodge and there's probably That's a right. Of, there's a series of like 10 mergers. Um, but in our lodge in that area in that time period we had roswell Lee himself we had uh george hendy who was the founder of india motorcycle we had james naismith um there was just like name after name we're still discovering names um in this in this period like if you go through that book and and so are the lodges that they came of um so i'm fortunate enough that we merged and i was able to find that history yeah, hundred percent. I mean, unfortunately, so many times, and we've talked about this in other episodes. But like when when lodges go through that merger, so many times those records just get either completely left or shoved in a side closet or just totally forgotten about. They're very rarely kind of put at that that forefront of there's something valuable here. We need to go through it. Um, the fact that you guys still have that, the fact that you've gone through it and found those, those bits um, speaks so highly. And, and obviously why we do these, you know, archival majors is for that to, to find those little bits, to connect those much larger dots, which is huge and was amazing that, you know, it got to the point where you're able to bring that stuff here to Kansas and try to have those documents. Um, what, what they, Lawrence Lodge, what, what was the document that they brought that had his uh, signature on it? So they had his, they had a copy of his uh, application in Kansas. And they That's also right. had a copy of his demit form from Massachusetts, which I believe now that I think about it, the demit was from 1927, but I think he was in Kansas well before that and just hadn't really got engaged with masonry in Kansas until later just kind of kept on with with this Massachusetts membership that makes total yeah. sense so now now that's really cool now he comes here uh to Kansas and uh ends up getting involved with the uh University of Kansas KU University um and we see kind of this picture that you painted when he's in Springfield and he gets involved with the YMCA and those different aspects of kind of building that moral character behind the scene um and then it's not enough talked about, but you, you found these facts that really kind of exploit that same aspect of him here during his employment at, at KU and kind of how he impacted the world in a silent manner um, in some multiple ways. W would you go on a little bit than that? I know we talked about uh, 
one of his employees that was kind of untraditional in the time. Yeah. So he comes to Kansas. Um, it was Chancellor Snow, I believe, um, hires him on. And he, he doesn't even come there. He doesn't come there as a basketball coach. Um, right. In reality, Naismith doesn't think basketball should be coached. He thinks it should be played. Um, and he actually tells Fog Allen that. He tells Fog Allen that, that in, in better words, he says basically he's an idiot because he's, he's going to be a coach because he shouldn't be coaching. Uh, that's not how it should be done. Um, luckily, Fog Allen didn't listen to him and you know, becomes, <laughs> goes on to be one of the most famous coaches in history. Um, but he goes there to be a chapel director and a physical agitation teacher. That's it. He's not, it's not a lot of fanfare, but they recruit him and he comes in, he comes for that. Um, so Naismith, you know, he, there is some untraditional things that happen there and, but it's, it's not different to his character because even when he's in Springfield within probably days of inventing basketball, <clears throat> Naismith teaches it to a, to a group of women from Smith college. Um, and it actually impacts the sport negatively in some places because people thought it was a girl's sport and they didn't want to play it. Um, you know, I think England and Africa and some countries in Africa were, were particularly. So what's interesting is that it, later on, well into the, towards the end of his career, um, Nate Smith is basically just a physical educator. He's just a teacher at that point, a professor. Um, but a, a young man comes into his office um, who wanted to learn about basketball, wanted to go to Springfield College because that's the YMCA training school is now known as Springfield College because he knows Naismith went there. And his dad said, well, you know, he, he's over at KU now, so why don't we go over to KU and, you know, you can ask him to mentor you. So he walks into Naismith's office and says, hey, I heard you're going to be my mentor. And Naismith said, well, who told you that? And he says, my father. And he goes, well, fathers are usually right, so sit down. So the interesting thing about this is that Kansas University at the time is a segregated school. And the the kid that comes into his office, John McClendon, is black. And Naismith chooses to mentor him anyway. It, we'll get into this a little more, but why that's important to me is that Naismith looks at basketball as a tool for creating virtue and a tool for changing communities. So the fact that he wants to give those tools to a person that comes from a background that is marginalized. And we know that Kansas had a decent um, background when it came, you know, they weren't a slave state. Um, they had better, definitely a better reputation than most of their neighbors, but nonetheless, it was a segregated school at the time and McClendon couldn't play basketball there. Um, he wasn't allowed. There wasn't, there was no uh, mixed race teams at the time and there was no um, black basketball team at the time. So what happens is he comes in and he teaches him how to be a coach. So one of the, pro, one of the, so McLennan becomes, I think one of the first, one of the first African-American students at Kansas university period. He's definitely one of the few. Um, and one of the requirements at the time at KU is that you have to swim um, in the pool, which is similar to, you know, I think KU has a similar background to, to Springfield college in that even to this day in Springfield college, you have to take 
a physical education course, a philosophy course, or a religion course, and your regular course load, or you don't graduate. Um, and I think KU probably had similar things where you had to have some physical education. In this case, they wanted you to swim. Well, we all know that back then, the way people looked at things, they didn't want to swim in the same water as a black man. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you don't get anything that's that's very um, graphic in what happened, but evidently whatever happened was nasty enough where they would they would drain the pool on him if he went and tried to go swim there. So Naismith grabs wow. two of the football players at KU and tells them to sit by the pool and if anyone messes with John McClendon to take care of it. Um, so this is the first, kind of the first thing. Um, of course, that doesn't make him popular. In fact, it probably makes things worse in some ways. And there starts to be racist signs put up all throughout the, the campus. Well, Naismith collects a bunch of the signs. As McClendon shows them to him. Naismith collects a bunch of the signs and he brings them into the chancellor's office and says, I will quit here tomorrow if you don't put a stop to this. Now, it, it's interesting to me that it seems like such a such a obvious thing to do, right? But we're thinking this is 1930s Kansas. Yeah, I mean, it, obvious today, right? And, and And so you mentioned, you know, Kansas was on the free state side of things, but where, where Lawrence is situated is right in the Kansas city Metro. And we're really close to that border area. And through that entire time, I mean, it it was a, it was a nasty back and forth, right? I mean, even on the Kansas side, there was plenty of people with those same views. Um, And going through, even in that time period when he's doing this, like, Yes, you know, Kansas has a a more favorable opinion uh, going back, but at the same time, that speaks volumes because he wasn't the celebrity at the time, right? Like, I mean, he, he didn't have that to back him or secure him or, you know, keep him safe in his job and his community standing, anything like Obviously, as we see, I mean, you're talking about they're going to drain the pool just to keep this kid out of the same water as they want to use. Like for Naismith to step up in those situations, um, I mean, that's that's a real deal. Like that that could put his livelihood in jeopardy. His you know his his place in the community. Like, and he's willing to stand up for what is right in a time period in the country um, that was still extremely aggravated and charged in in that negative light and that you know that that just speaks volumes to that moral character um within naismith that doesn't get talked about nearly enough yeah absolutely i agree and you know it 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 goes on from there and it, it it'd be one thing if he just taught mcclendon and you're like okay mcclendon was you know learned to be a basketball coach but McClendon goes on to invent the fast break, the four corners offense, a few other things, become the first African-American coach of a Caucasian team, the first African-American coach of any team, uh, any professional team of any sport, and the first African-American coach in the Olympics. Um, he's not a head coach of the Olympics, but he's a, a coach in the Olympics on one of the, on the team. Um, 
But to think about the movie. impact that he had in those areas, I mean, so I mean that that's mind blowing because if Naismith hadn't have taken some of the steps he made, what like where would we be in that realm of the world, right? What would basketball yeah. be today, if anything? But then because he took those really controversial measures and took on to this mentorship, look what this guy went on and did. Yeah. Like wh- where would basketball be without him as well? Uh, just, you know, that, that whole face really plays in piece by piece here, which is fascinating real quick before you get back into what you were saying, I'm sorry to interrupt you there. I didn't catch this before, but so you're saying that he started out back in Springfield and came to Kansas to follow an Smith. Was that correct? No, he wanted to go to Spring. He was from Kansas. Oh, he, he, he was from to to here, Springfield. wanted to – got yeah. you, got you. But his family didn't have a lot of money. They couldn't afford to send him to, to Springfield. And then he – by just by divine providence or whatever, he happens to be like mile, miles away from where Naismith is <laughs> teaching. Like the guy he wants to go learn from is just like in his backyard and he doesn't even realize it. It's uh, meant to be. Yeah. And so, you know, to your point of like – the impact he had the the crazy part to me is that's one guy like yeah. Naismith had had a lot of reach um you know through the YMCA movement and through the muscular Christianity movement he had a ton of reach and so every time I dig I just find more and more and even with McLendon that's those parts aren't even the most interesting parts I mean he becomes a he, he gets inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame twice, once as a contributor and once as a coach. Um, but to me, the most important thing is that he wants to go He wants to go take a master's course after he finishes his coursework at Kansas. So Naismith doesn't have a lot of money. Naismith never capitalized on any of his fame. He didn't believe – he didn't really believe that – uh, professional basketball was a good thing. He thought that collegiate and high school basketball was better. Mm. Um, he refused to take money um, to from tobacco companies because he didn't believe in he didn't believe in tobacco. He thought it was immoral, um, so he didn't want to profit off of that. So he lived. He he was very very. Um, I want I don't want to say destitute, but he definitely he he was kind of la- living hand to mouth. But right. McClendon asked, you know, he says, you know, can you help me get into a master's program? Again, we already know what he went through at Kansas. So I'm sure four years later, there's a lot of places in the country that don't really want to educate a black man in, you know, to get their master's degree. So McClendon, Naismith pulled some strings with the connections that he had because he had plenty of connections. He was rich in connections, although not in money. Um, He pulls some strings and gets him in, I believe, at the University of Iowa. He goes to the University of Iowa. His major at the University of Iowa, his thesis was that he disproved the physio- the difference in the physiological, or the, he proved that there was no physiological difference in the races, which sounds like, again, it sounds like just so obvious to us in yeah. the modern mind. But, you know, in the Olympics, Jesse Owens after Jesse Owens won four Olympic medals, the major argument at that time period was that Jesse Owens was closer to an animal than he was to a human being. So of course he won, of course he won those medals and it wasn't fair. They were basically saying it wasn't fair for people to have to compete against him for that reason. So this is very, very important 
um, a very, very important discovery or, or a very important proof that McLendon proves. Um, and Naismith, by him saying yes to him when he walks into his office, by him defending him and helping him get through the coursework when other people would rather see him fail, and by right. him pulling strings, Naismith's connected to that. He never takes credit for it. And, you know, sure. I don't think he should take credit for it because McClendon did the work. But nonetheless, I mean, he has a hand in it. And I think it's important, especially in that time period. And nobody talks about it. They just it's it's like Naismith's all, you know, oh, he was a he invented basketball. And even when I started researching him, I'm like, oh, there's nothing more to it. Like, he's probably <laughs> pretty boring. I, this is going to be a short talk, if you know, when I started writing the talk. Uh, but he's not, and I, and the more you dig, the more you find that that's it, and it's 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 not the exception. It's basically the rule in his life. Whether it's teaching women to play basketball, whether it's teaching McLendon to coach basketball, um, and countless other people, um, whether it's teaching people with physical disabilities at KU, uh, there was a there was a runner that was ended up being an Olympic athlete that uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but. Naismith basically one of the comments was that he overhears this this gentleman saying telling other people how to catch a second wind and running and he goes up to him and he says like you can't say that to them and he goes what do you mean why can't I say it and he goes cuz you're going to kill them cuz they don't have half the heart that you have you know but Naismith really and McLennan says this and I don't have the exact quote at the top of my mind but Naismith says basically that, or McLennan says about Naismith that Ms. Naismith never had a racist bone in his body, that all Naismith saw in people was potential. And That's that beautiful. his job, his his like reason for living was to help people discover that potential in themselves. Um, I, you know, we need more James Naismiths out there. Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, yeah. It, it, like, like I said, and, you know, even being on that Kansas side, you know, obviously as we see how some of those kids and stuff treated them, like, I, I think a lot of it was more quiet than non-existent. Right. And, you know, I, man, I would, I would love to see the face when he turned, uh, not Naismith, but, um, the other guy, when he turned in his, uh, his thesis paper being on that, because especially going back into so much of just the idiotic, uh, racist rhetoric that you would see that that was one of the key factors that you would see so much is trying to paint that divide, um, that African-Americans are not human, you know, they're, they're savage, they're different from us. And, uh, to go in there and from an educated standpoint, uh, a master's thesis paper, be able to, from that level, uh, disprove it on an academic level, um, especially in that time period. I mean, holy cow. Yeah. And Speaks he definitely goes off Naismith with that because Naismith, Naismith is a, is, he's an ordained minister, but he's also a doctor. I mean, and he's not a doctor of religion. He's a doc. He's a physical, like a, right. Medical, you know, he has a medical degree. Um, and he, and he's a coach. I mean, so he, he has all these different parts to himself. And so, I, you know, I, I'm sure that that, you know, he wasn't just mentoring him and how, like, here's how you coach basketball. I'm sure he was mentoring him on the entire package. And part of that package was probably the basis for the scientific work that he was able to do to prove that. Um, 
because it's not a sociological thing. It's a, you know, it's a very scientific paper. Um, and you find that with Naismith, like he's a, you know, he's an inventor. One of the things I found an article recently from a newspaper of the time period in Kansas where Naismith invents the first, the first like chronological tool to, to measure splits on a track. So it's, it's this thing that has like electrical switches with like bamboo reeds so that as you run by the band, you hit the bamboo reeds, it makes a reading on this and gives you, it, and gives you the splits as you're running, like I thought every hundred meters or whatever. Um, and they wow. gave him credit for inventing that. Um, so yeah, I, I just, you know, it, it's, it's all those things that kind of come together to make him so interesting. And, and even, you know, we talked about how he doesn't have a lot of money. Um, 1936, the Olympics, the basketball debuts as a competitive sport. It had been kind of a, uh, in the past, it had been a, um, you know, an exhibition, a, exhibition kind of thing. But th- it was the first time in 1936 in Berlin that it was competitive. And Naismith can't afford to go. So Fog Allen puts together this, like, uh, campaign pennies for Naismith raising money enough money so Naismith and his wife can go to can go to Germany and see the see the sport that he invented uh, debuted for the first time in the Olympics, which Naismith says is the most important thing he's ever done in his life, like that he's ever seen. It's like the best thing he's ever seen. Um, so McLennan comes up to him and says, uh, "Hey, I need to ma- earn some money for something. Can can I do anything for you to earn money?" And Nate Smith lets him mow his lawn. And he pays him 50 cents to mow his lawn. And I believe what I read at the time period was the 50 cents is basically like you could make about 35 cents a week at the time. Right. Oh, wow. He gives him like a week's wages to mow his lawn on the weekend. And McLendon turns around and puts that back into the campaign so he can go to Berlin. Right, so that's fantastic. He tricks, him, he tricks him into funding his own campaign, which is kind of, <laughs> you know, Naismith could have used the fifty cents, maybe I don't know, <laughs> but but that's fantastic. What he is right, like oh, hundred percent, yeah. You know, I, like you said, when you when you started out um, with this, you know, this this presentation in mind, just thinking there's not much more to it than his tie to basketball and that's kind of about all the, that was wrote. And, you know, sadly that's, that's all I really knew either. You know, those, those high points and, Oh, cool. And he's got this connection to masonry. And unfortunately anybody that has any remote connection to like some level of fame, if there is a Masonic tie, doesn't matter anything in the backside, that person is just going to be elevated. Like, man, he was a Mason and, you know, just throw it out there in any which way you can. Um, and largely that's, that's happened to Naismith just around the fact of basketball. Nobody knows like this true side of Naismith and man, when you delivered, you know, this, the, the parts that I was able to uh, sit there and watch was just, just absolutely beautiful just to bring this guy's true life um, back to life and kind of get to know him on that deeper level. You know, basketball is obviously extremely important to him and a huge part of who he was, but he had this like almost larger aspect to him that just needed to be heard. Um, 
that really nobody talks about or knew about until, you know, guys like you have the, you know, just the inertia to go connect those dots and, and dig up a little bit and really bring, bring out who this guy truly was, especially in a time period where that was going against the grain in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I found even more about him after the talk, like, um, I think Robert and I were talking and all of a sudden I, I happened upon this thing. So Naismith serves, served with Pershing in the Pancho Villa, um, you know, the raids across the Pancho Villa raids across the border. Yeah. And, and the, so the national guard gets called up, he gets called up in the national guard as a Canadian citizen and at 54 years old. So he gets called in the wow. service. When he gets called up, he leaves so fast that he forgets his teeth at home and he has to have his wife mail them for him. <laughs> right. Um, and he goes down to serve. So I'm like, well, what did he do? He just like, what did he do on the border? I didn't really know. And so I started digging into that. So he was a chaplain basically on the border. And so they tell these sort of basically what he did, one of his ba- major things was keeping guys out of the whorehouses. Like that was his thing. And so you think of it as like, okay, so this is going to be this guy that's just playing the morality police and because he's religious, it's going to right. put religion on everybody else. But there's this story out there where when he first gets down there, the paymaster, because, you know, they used to get paid in cash, you know, and the paymaster would pay you out. Well, the paymaster runs off with his money. Naismith's not there that week or whatever, runs off with his money. So all the other officers are like, you got to bring that guy up on charges. You know, this is... You know, this is horrible. And he's like, ah, the kid doesn't have the money anymore anyway. What's the difference? And he just goes without for like a week or whatever the time period is until he gets his next paycheck. And one of the, he writes back to his wife. And in a letter to his wife, he says basically that the reason that he's so tough on keeping the kids out of those, you know, houses of ill repute is because he doesn't want them to live the same life that he did that week when he didn't have any money. And that those places are places where guys get robbed and, you know, just the, just the act of going there is going to cost you money and the drinking and everything else that goes along around with it, that he right. felt like it was unhealthy and it was detrimental to them as, as human beings, not as, you know, God's going to like tell you that you sinned or whatever. That, that wasn't his approach. His, his total approach was just that he cared enough about people that he didn't want to see them in, you know, served with any misfortune. Uh, right. So you think of that, like in this Pancho Villa raid. So you have Blackjack Pershing from Missouri, right? Makes it from Missouri. Um, you have General Patton who makes his way into that campaign. And you have James Naismith there all at the same time in this like raid. And, and Naismith's basically on the border. Um, but after that, he goes back and he ends up enlisting again with, with Pershing. And he goes to World War One, and he goes to France, and he serves as like um, a director of like basically what becomes what's in the service now, what's in in the military now, like a, a MWR, a morale, uh, like a recreation and and wellness kind of program, where his thing is he can keep them out of those kind of places again in in over there by having them play basketball by giving them something positive to do with their time because he figures if they have a bunch of time on their hands, then that's when they're going to do all these other things. 
Um, I think he even invents a sport when another sport, which never really caught on. He thought it was going to be bigger than basketball, but I, even, <laughs> I can't even tell you what it is. Um, and he invents that sport. I think it was in, in Mexico when he was on that campaign um, as like a, as a pastime for the troops, you know, and sets up like another basketball league there. It's just amazing that the stuff that he did um, in that one life period. And it, right. You know, what amazes me at that time period more than any, I think really resonates with me of, of the second industrial revolution through this, like, um, I guess through the gilded age and the progressive era is like really his time period of being. And he's, he's kind of like a representative of that entire era um, of just the inventiveness and, you know, to, to bring it full circle where we started this conversation of he's a guy that just, he sees a problem and he knows that he can get in there and, and roll up his sleeves and get something done and fix it. And, you know, I don't know if that, you know, masonry came later to him. So sometimes I think with masons, it's the chicken and the egg, like which came first and did, did right. masonry make them who they were or did masonry just like amplify who they were already, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously masonry touches on many of these aspects of what I call, you know, these universal truths. And I, I think there has to be parts of you that are already in alignment um, for it to really click with you uh, and, you know, take on from that point. I, I think Naismith obviously was a very, very genuine person below. Um, when When you're someone that's of that frequency, I guess you could say, um, I think, you know, a practice such as masonry is just intended to excel that much more and be that much more powerful within you. It's, it's that toolkit for guys like him. Um, so, I mean, yeah, he, it, it was a huge fact, um, that he got involved in you know, what came first I'm sure in many ways he came, you know, the, a lot of that was just natural to him that that's who he was. Uh, masonry was just a conduit to continue that on and, and potentially grow it. But I mean, yeah, such, such an impactful story. So when you were here, one of the really cool things uh, we got to do, um, we, we had the opportunity to get you up to Lawrence um, for one uh, to go visit his final resting place. He's buried uh, in Lawrence, not too far from campus. And I know that was really important to you to try to fit that in during the trip. And, uh, it, it was a little funny because we, we get to the, uh, the cemetery out there and they've got this massive monument right up front. And, you know, all the time I've lived in uh, Kansas my whole life. I was actually born in Lawrence. Um, but I'd, I'd never been out to see that. So that was, that was first time for me as well. And they've got this huge monument, but it's like, well, we're, where is he buried? We walked that we yeah. walked that whole cemetery until we found him kind of in the very, very back. Just <laughs> yeah. would have never known. But uh so now they have uh the DeBruce Center on campus there, and that's kind of got the uh the basketball uh museum in there, and they've even got the original rules to basketball in their smithsonian style <laughs> vault here in yeah. kansas let me throw up a, a few pictures because uh these aren't from our trip i i wish i was better prepared and uh and grab some of the pictures from us being out there um but i did have these in a file from the 
Grand Lodge uh, dedication when the DeBruce Center um, was was built and, and dedicated uh, not too far in the past. So this is kind of the building here, and we, we see, I think my cursor's showing up here. Um, right outside here, we got a cool picture with you sitting next to him, but there's this really neat um, statue of Naismith sitting on the bench out there uh, right in front of the DeBruce Center. Um, so here is some of the photos from the dedication ceremony. And when I was speaking to uh, the director uh, or executive director of Kansas Masonic Foundation, uh, he was saying actually he's going to get one of these in the mail uh, to you, brother, for uh, the knowledge on Naismith that you brought to us at MasonicCon Kansas. Um, but you see here they put together this this really nice um placard poster whatever you want to call it with a really cool photo of naismith and then his uh, petition into masonry here in kansas uh, on the right and should have one of those in the mail to you in the near future but they also have one of those hanging uh in the debruce center um kind of showing off his masonic connections as well which you know i think is really cool that's amazing so we just have some really neat, and we we talked about this. They've got all these different sayings uh, from Naismith on the exterior of the building. And I remember when we were walking by it. You're like, man, they need to have some kind of a recorder out there just yeah. reading those off as you walk by. Yeah, those are the rules. I think you know those are the the original thirteen rules. And there's a uh, brother Woodward who unfortunately just passed away uh, on the right there uh, last year. There's that awesome statue. Yeah. And then over in front of uh, Allen Foghouse uh, Stadium, there's uh, kind of a life-size statue of Allen over there as well. Who, who I later learned was also a, a member of... Uh... Lawrence Lodge. Was he really? I did not know that. Yeah. That's what that's I learned interesting. From, uh, from one of the brothers there. He said, yeah, you know, Fog Allen was a member too. Um, that's wild. So, you know, what's interesting is that on that trip, like, so I don't know if you remember seeing this. I know I was with Robert at the time and we saw this dragon. Like it was like this piece of like marble that was in the shape of a dragon yeah yeah right by the uh the far door there so that was from the snow center i believe or yes so so doing some research on that that's where the first basketball court at kansas was and okay it was a it was like a biology i want to say it was a biology building and so the upstairs like there's pictures you can go online and, and get um there's some pictures of that where they have like stuffed moose and like all these taxidermied animals and the bottom, the basement of it was a, was a botany lab. And the description of it is, is that the, they basically the basement was split into two and on one half was the botany lab. And on the other half was the basketball court and they put a net up in the middle so that the ball wouldn't go in and break all the stuff in the botany lab. And there was like a big post in the middle of it. So people would like run into the post while they were playing. Um, but yeah, like you see the DeBruce center that, you know, this multimillion dollar um, basketball stadium, which is awesome. And you think of like the humble beginnings of when he brought basketball there um, and they just played it in a basement next to a botany lab, you know, um, 
think one of the things Robert said was like it's basically like basketball started in Kansas and the Smithsonian. You know, like, right. <laughs> like hey, let's start a court in the middle of the Smithsonian. Well, you know, it's funny when you say that is is trying to drawing the connection because helium was discovered at the University of Kansas, um, and I can't remember what building it was, but one of the buildings there on campus in the basement. So apparently, all kinds of really cool things come out of basements in Lawrence, Kansas. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's awesome. But you know, Lawrence is uh, especially campus kind of specifically campus is really an odd area. Um, this side of Kansas has a little more hills than most. You get out into Western Kansas and it's very, very, very flat, very flat. Um, here it's, you know, we, we've kind of got those Ozark Hills a little bit, not, you know, not much, but um, when you get to the uh, campus for KU, it just like automatically goes from zero to a hundred and feels like you're in Arkansas or something. You just got these steep inclines and it's, it's really an odd little place, but um, lots of, lots of really, really neat history there. They did a fantastic job on the museum there um, in the debris center that uh, we got to take you to. Um, they had the original floor from the, you know, the original court and everything still perfectly preserved. Uh, yeah old uniforms, old letter jackets, all kinds of stuff. They did a really, really excellent job. Uh, if any of you guys watch and ever have the opportunity, uh, you know, just passing through Lawrence or something, um, it's open to the public. It's free, um, but it's really, really cool opportunity to stop in there and see some of that history um, right before your eyes. Really neat. Yeah. It might take a little of the shine off of Naismith, though, because you'll learn that he was the only losing basketball coach in KU history. <laughs> <laughs> he invented the sport, but he couldn't coach to save his life. Right, exactly. And that's why he didn't like coaching because he wasn't good at it. Yeah, you know that. There's no. probably something to that. Yeah, there's probably something to that. But you know, it's one of those things that you know everyone's kind of uh, kind of got their toolkit, and maybe coaching wasn't exactly his. But um, especially as we see tonight, he was able to bring some really really bright light into the world in many different ways. So. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, something that's interesting is that like, so when you, I found a letter from McLendon, uh, McLendon to one of Naismith's descendants. And basically I want to say it was his granddaughter or grandniece. Um, and he's starting to talk to him about his, like his, his time period with Mason with Naismith. He doesn't talk about basketball once. Is that right? Yep. He doesn't bring it up. He, I think he brings up athletics a little bit, but he doesn't really bring up basketball. What he does bring up is he said, like, you know, that Naismith was really in, he was interested in these people, you know, becoming better people, and that he he goes on to tell this time that Naismith talked talk to them about the immortality of the soul and how it was different in a bunch of different cultures. So you have this minister this Christian minister in the 1930s talking about the immortality of the soul in like a comparative religion kind of way. Um, wow. And it's just, it's just another one of those things that the most important thing that, that after all that we just talked about with McClendon and Naismith, the most important thing he could talk about is a conversation they had on the immortality of the soul. That's deep. Yeah. So, Very I mean, all the boundaries they broke together, you know, that wasn't it. it. It was really, he's like, you know, he cared about you being a good person. Right. And, you know, that's who he was. That, that 
you know, all this, all the other stuff's kind of irrelevant at that point, you know, it's, and, and that's, I think that's what really inspires me about Naismith is that he, you know, he went out there and did the right thing. He went out there and tried to develop other people. And all he thought of himself was his instructor. You know, he, he just, I mean, that's the kind of man I want to be. I don't know. Right. Like, you know, if I can right. be half the man that guy was, then I'll be doing pretty good in life. Yeah, man, I, I think it would be so cool just to be a fly on the wall for one of those conversations. I mean, we, we, we think back to the mentoring uh, aspect with McClendon there and how much of it probably had zero to do with athletics, basketball, any of that. You know, it, going through that time period and especially – you know, being of a different race and, and dealing with those things and seeing that wholesome background that Naismith had. I mean, you can imagine some of the advice, insights and stuff that Naismith probably shared and man, what I would give to, <laughs> you know, just hear one conversation of that and how those conversations went. Cause I'm fairly certain they were very impactful. Oh yeah. To be a student, you know, to be a student in his class. And that's why I just, the more, I, you know, I want to write a book about him at this point. And mostly I want to research more of it. Um, and it's just, that's one story. We talked, we talked for almost an hour and the majority one of little bit. one relationship. Yeah. Right? And I mean, there had to be thousands of relationships that, that he had, you know, with his well, and that's the thing. It, 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 it was a relationship that, while Naismith's name is much bigger than McClendon's, he also had this historical impact in his own way. I mean, think about all the people, all the connections throughout Naismith's life with just average nobodies and yeah. how many more stories there are um, is just mind blowing. It's one of those guys that probably truly changed the course of the world. I think he did. And, you know, that's, I'm glad you said that. Cause I think one of the things I talk about in the talk and I, and it's one of the things that, you know, those 13 rules, I think, I think I forget who it was, but somebody, when we went to go see the rules, right. They were like, I don't know, it's just 13 rules. I don't want to go see that. And I'm like, <laughs> Man, like, okay, let's take this in context, right? This is, these are 13 rules that this guy had somebody type up and posted to teach people a sport, right, at a school. Like, he was just solving a, a problem at a little school in Springfield, Massachusetts, right. you know, with a couple thousand students at it probably at the time. And that sport has grown to where 2.2 billion people play it, and it's the third largest sport in the world. And it was all because this guy, who was an instructor, right, not inventor, <laughs> Not, you know, anything else. He's just an instructor. This humble guy invents this sport and it touches the lives to currently today, not historically, currently today, 2.2 billion people. So add up historically all the people it's touched along the way since 1891. And think right. about the, the impact of an idea and that fact of what we talked about in the beginning about trying to have an impact on your world and making the world a better place, that he's proof that you can do that. You know, yeah. Um, 
And it's just, it, to me, it's amazing. It, it, it really is. And it, you know, call this, call this kind of defined Providence too. It's kind of funny. And I, I didn't tell you this earlier, but my boss took us out to lunch today and he's like, where do you want to go? And we didn't really think about where we were going to go. And he goes, let's go to plan B burger for those guys. For those of you that aren't from Massachusetts, Springfield, Massachusetts, plan B burger is in the Naismith hall of fame, basketball hall of fame. Okay. So I actually ate lunch about, I'd say like, 400 yards from the James Naismith statue outside the outside the, cool. uh, the basketball hall of fame. Um, That's cool. Totally unintentional. Just that I didn't plan to do that. We never <laughs> go there. Like first time we ever gone there together. Uh, he's like, let's go there. I'm like, yeah, cool. I'm in. <laughs> well, now I got to get up there. I got to have a burger there. That sounds amazing. Right. But you know, it, even, even past you're talking about over 2 billion people even past that, I mean, you can't go into a store today. Even grocery stores have a basketball in it for sale. You go to Dollar General anywhere. There, basketball is so integrated into the culture worldwide these days that, I mean, even beyond the organized sport of it, like basketball is everywhere. And how mind-blowing would that be? If he was able to join <laughs> join us today just for an hour and just see how what he created one day on a whim uh his is truly impacted the entire world. Oh yeah. It's he wouldn't insane. even recognize it, right? Those 13 rules, like I'm pretty sure we don't follow yeah. any of them. <laughs> exactly. Like, they didn't dribble back then. Um you know, there there was all kinds of different things. Like none of that stuff was um you know, he saw some of it get put into place, but, um, it, you know, it's such a simple sport, but that's kind of the beauty of it is because you have these 13 simple rules that starts it. And the, and one of the rules, the unwritten rules, the 14th rule is probably change these rules to suit your own specific needs. Like yeah. one of the rules, like I like to point out to people, there isn't one rule that addresses how many people are on the team. So the first basketball team, the first basketball games, some of them had like 50 people on a court. That's insane. I remember we were talking about that in the, in the museum there. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and like in a Masonic Lodge, the Trenton, New Jersey, I think is the first Masonic Lodge. That was the first basketball cage. Like, you know how they call, you know, a lot of basketball, especially in colleges, you know, some, it'll be called the cage or something like that. I think UMass is the cage. Um, there was basketball cages because it shortened the game because you didn't have ball going out of bounds a lot. So, and it okay. would keep spectators from interfering with the, with the game, but there's actually Masonic lodges where they had cages in there so they could play basketball. Um, you know, you don't see that kind of stuff now, but it's just, <laughs> it's just amazing that none of that would have been the, the way the sport is today. He wouldn't have seen, never mind the Euro step. Like I can't figure that out, but he would totally be lost with that. Um, right. Just so many different things that he wouldn't have seen. But one thing he would recognize is the fact that to this day, the fact that it's the fact that it is such an inexpensive sport that all you need is a backboard, a bass. You know, you don't even need the net half the time. Um, <laughs> right. And a ball. And that the transformative nature that that sport has in the inner cities and um is is amazing and it, you know it continued to it continued to break barriers more and more um another massachusetts freemason was uh 
Red Red Auerbach, who follows in his footsteps in some some regards, and uh, he ends up drafting the first African American player, and you know he ends up making appointing the first African American uh, coach in the NBA. Um, it's just it's always broken barriers, and it continues to do so. Um, and, and it's just it's baked in. Like there's some people that'll tell you, like some people that you and I probably wouldn't be friends with, but there are some people that'll tell you that like basketball is far from its roots. And I, I, safe to say that basketball is exactly doing what it should be today, and yeah. continuing to to serve to uh, help make people better and help them change their communities and you know make the world around them a better place. Um, and it does it all over the world. Beautifully put, brother. Well, we have had an epic conversation this evening. And as you stated, we talked about one bit of this amazing man's life. Um, So much more that can be discussed. And I really, really do truly hope that uh, you go through with writing that book because that's something that needs to be done. And I'm thrilled to uh, look forward to reading that one day. Um, but definitely want to thank you so much for coming on. We're just past the nine o'clock hour. Uh, we typically do a traditional toast at the end of these. And I wanted to see if you would uh, be kind enough to offer us up a toast this evening. Sure. Uh, I'd, I'd like to offer a toast to all the brothers. Um, and I guess you and I would be included in that that want to make an impact in the world and make a toast that may we all have the fortune um, and the tenacity to make an impact like brother Naismith did. Here, here. Cheers. Fantastic. Well, brother, thank you so much for coming on this evening. Before we wrap up, I do want to give you an opportunity for, for any final thoughts you might have this evening. You know, I, I want to thank you for having me come on. Um, you know, I know this is something I'm, I'm really passionate about just because um, of what he means to the world and what he means to me. And I, I, I love having the opportunity to share this, um, especially with you, um, especially we have that connection, you know, being that he was from both places. Um, but really, like I said, uh, kind of reiterate is that if, if we can take anything from this, I think we take it that a man with a simple idea, a little virtue and a little elbow grease can change the world. You know, if that's what he sets out to do. So um, that's kind of what I want to leave everybody with. That's fantastic, man. And very, very beautifully put. Um, I do want uh give you an opportunity here. I know you've, you've had so many efforts in masonry and thank you so much for all that you do for the craft. One of the exciting ones uh, recently is you guys have picked up a project that Robert Johnson originally started and have brought it back to life in an amazing way. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about that podcast that you're involved in. Yeah. So we picked up um, the Masonic curators podcast. Um, Brian and I reached out to um, Keith McKinnon and um, John Wilder. Um, Keith McKinnon's from Cambridge, uh, the Cambridge Lodge. And 
I, I don't know if you ever got a chance to see it when you were up here, but you know, when, when Keith was in charge of that up there, he amassed a library of 20,000 Masonic artifacts in, in that lodge building. Um, it no longer looks like that at this point. Um, there's some of it up there, but it's not the extent it used to be. And John Wilder is a historian for Aleppo Shrine in Boston. And um, so Brian and I just asked, they, they started a group called the Masonic Historical Preservation Society. And it's just a group of collectors and historians um, that are really, really passionate about preserving our Masonic heritage and our Masonic history. Um, and, you know, they're not afraid to dive in a dumpster to save some of the stuff that lodges just throw away. And, I, you know, I, I know you've seen it. I mean, these guys are awesome. They're hilarious. They're very passionate. They're very knowledgeable. And really, Brian and I, like, we take a backseat. You know, I edit the videos and I sit there and record with them. Uh, but we've the the basic the the way we're doing it right now is that uh, we'll go to a lodge and film in that lodge with the east as the backdrop usually, and uh, we'll they'll bring some objects that they want to talk about, and we'll have somebody from the lodge bring some objects about, out of their personal histories of the lodge out of their collections, and we'll have somebody from the lodge talk about it. Um, and they're all five to 10 minute episodes. Um, and we're, I think we're on episode 40 right now. I think this week will be 40. Um, and it's going to be about a year. Well, I mean, 12 weeks, I guess will be a year because we, have, we put them out once a week on Monday mornings. Um, and they're just phenomenal. I mean, Keith McKinnon can talk to you about like, there's literally one on there. It's already released. So I'm not telling you anything. He talks about a porcelain plate and traces the history of that plate to the American standard toilet bowl. Right. Right. Like, and Keith uh, is an amazing guy. I've had some great conversations with him. Yeah. He's, I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal. I just love to watch it. Like I just, they'll be like, are you going to do one? And I'm like, no, no, I'm just having fun watching you. Guys. <laughs> and, and John brings this stuff out that like, you know, he brings this shrine history out and you know, shrine, Shrine them's not really known for its history, right? Like most, for the most part, they don't really care about it. Um, but he brings some stuff out, and it, it's amazing some of the stuff that that he's bringing out. Um, it, there was a what was the other day? It was an original Paul Revere spoon that was given to uh, Harold Lloyd, who was the silent movie actor. You know the yeah. safety first kind of thing where he's hanging off the clock. Um, so he ties it into the like he ties this thing in. He's got this. He doesn't have the the Revere spoon, but he has like these other artifacts and or these magazines that the shrine used to have, where they're like original uh, original short stories. I mean, it's just the stuff that they bring up. You know, I did, I'm having fun. I'm I'm having a ball like just editing this stuff because I'm going searching. Like if they they'll just drop some random fact and I'll, I'll go search some stuff on you know on Google or whatever. I put some pictures up to support it. And uh, it, it's just amazing. I, I mean, the last, and we filmed in some pretty cool lodges. I mean, we filmed in one of the lodges was a um, King Solomon's lodge. They, they created the Bunker Hill Memorial, the, the mine, oh, wow. the original one, the, the wooden one. And there's still a piece of it in their lodge. Uh, oh, wow. And, so we we show that we show some original power of your charters jewels 
the 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 sign for the the slate sign from the Bunker Hill Monument, which is in somebody's garden, face down, and they found it. Of um, course, yeah, yeah. A lodge in we haven't released this one yet, but there's a lodge in um, Rhode Island. The timbers of the lodge, like in the ceiling, the 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 beams in the ceiling, are f- from a scuttled Revolutionary War era ship. You know, they scuttled it so that the British couldn't come in the bay in Rhode Island. And these guys were like, well, we're going to build a lodge. We need some wood. Where are we going to get the wood? And they're like, well, we sunk that ship out there. So why don't we go get the timbers from that ship? <laughs> and this is the the part of their lodge. And, the, oh, man, that's such a beautiful lodge. The, the, the paintings in the lodge are a brother was in. They wanted him to do something based on Egyptian, uh, like I'm an Egyptian motif. He goes to the Boston Library and pulls out uh, the Egyptian Book of the Dead and creates the story of Freemasonry panel by panel, only using art from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Oh, wow. And this is like 360 degree of the lodge room. So, I mean, that one's coming out soon. Um, I think pretty cool, pretty soon. It's just amazing. You just be amazed at the stuff that these guys find. Uh, that's fantastic well we will make sure that we get the uh link to your guys' show in the show notes for this episode i encourage you guys all to go check them out like and subscribe to the masonic curators uh another group of guys that are preserving and telling history so it carries on to the next generation so my brother thank you so much for coming on this evening for sharing your knowledge and for all that you do uh for the craft today Please thank your family for letting us borrow you away for a little bit this evening and hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us live this evening and we will see you in two weeks right back here on Historical Light. Have a great evening.